Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations, including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field? No problem, because in our specialty spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with Dr. Spelt DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So without further ado, let's jump straight into today's specialty spotlight. So welcome back to the podcast. Today we're joined by not one, but two guests. And without further ado, so we've got Lauren and Emma who are joining us today. Some of you might recognise Lauren's voice from the previous episodes we did with the GMC and the ethical scenarios. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and listen to them because they really are quite good, even if I do say so myself. But you haven't met Emma before. So perhaps if we just start off with Emma, would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself? So my name's Emma. I'm a GPST3 in York, so in my final year of training. Um, and I took a year out last year to be a Health Equity Leadership Fellow with Health Education England, Yorkshire and Humber. And Lauren, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners who might not have met you on our previous GMC episode? Thanks again for having me and I'm so sorry to your listeners to listening to my voice here for the third time, but hopefully we can be some use again today. So my name's Lauren and I'm also <laughs> a GPSG3, so that's the final year of GP training um, in the Yorkshire and Humber region. Um, I also, like Emma, did a leadership fellow, but working on winding participation, which I know uh, this podcast is quite keen for. So that's encouraging people from lower socioeconomic classes and other less represented areas to consider a career in medicine. Um, and I know we talked last time, um, if you've not listened to the podcast previously, about a virtual work experience app that I've been doing um, which I think we might get on to talking about again today but um, just another plug for that virtual work experience for those that might be struggling during the current pandemic. So I think maybe the first thing we should talk about is how did you both decide to be a GP because I think for me at the moment I've not even done my clinical placement so medicine is just kind of this I still don't even feel like I'm a medical student I just feel like I'm still still way back in the process thinking about being a doctor is like 30 years away so how did you both sort of come to the decision that you wanted to be a GP was it easy Is something you always knew or what what happened I think I've always really enjoyed GP so I grew up in a family and um, with health professionals so my great great aunt was a GP in med school when it was a rarity from the first women to go to um, she's very old school and she ran like a one-handed practice that she'd taken over from her father it was always something kind of medicine was always something that was kind of talked about and kind of grew up kind of hearing that kind of talking and things and um, I thought, oh, I like the idea of medicine. It's a bit like being a detective. I love, I love people. I love the idea of making a difference. I love how things are always changing and you can constantly learn. And I did some work experience and did some volunteering as Red Cross and absolutely loved it. So I tried for medicine. Um, I found medicine really hard at about first medical. So I'm not very sciencey and I really struggle with the kind of biochemistry and all that stuff. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't what medicine is. And kind of got to clinical years and I was like, something has clicked. Yes, this is why I want to be a doctor. Um, and I guess sort of, I just love GP, you have that continuity, you get to know your patients from cradle to grave, you, you get to be on that journey with the patient and you, you, you don't know what's going to come on your list. You could have a morning where you're dealing with depression, with someone who wants emergency contraception, someone who needs to be admitted urgently. So there's so many things, it's that variety that I find really appealing. When I did my foundation jobs, um, 
I wasn't quite sure what specialty, but I always thought, oh, maybe GP, I do like the mixture. Um, and I kind of realised after my GP and FT, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I love the mixture. Um, I really like women's health as well. And that was something I thought about doing. Um, but realised that to do gum, you needed to do general medicine too, which is something I really didn't enjoy in a hospital setting. Um, so I thought, GP, I can do kind of wide variety, but also then have an interest on the side in kind of women's health and do things like the family planning um, and the kind of community gynecology side of things as well. Amazing. I guess, Lauren, did you did you have a similar journey in terms of lots of medics in the family or was it because obviously you're at a similar point now, but it's very interesting, I, I think, finding out how people get to that point because there's so many different routes and, and ways. Would you be able to talk a little bit about your journey into medicine? Yeah, and I think from what Lucy said at the start about still feeling like a medical student, I still feel like a medical student. So I don't think that ever changes. I think kind of you already feel about probably, well, five years behind. I wish I was five years uh, younger anyway. But um, <laughs> I think that never leaves you um, even when you fully qualify, that, that feeling. A bit of imposter syndrome if people have heard about it. Um, but uh, hopefully that'll get better the, the older I get. But yeah, kind of I'm, I'm very different to Emma. I'm from I'm from a winding participation background myself. So um classed as being from a lower socioeconomic background for me it was a simple um, I was at high school which is uh, it was a I think it's needs improvement on Ofsted at the minute um, but it was certainly needs improvement when I was there uh, and Sheffield University came to have a chat with us there so as Sheffield Outreach and Access to Medicine Scheme shortened to SOMES which is a bit easier to say and they came and did a lunchtime meeting and they said you can join this scheme and think about considering a career in medicine I never ever thought about it as no other medical doctors or nurses in my family so it wasn't something that I'd ever come across and it was literally that simple talk that made me consider a career in medicine so I think it is really important and this is why I'm so passionate about one participation because I know that it's simple one little interaction can really change the course of somebody's life and I certainly wouldn't be sat here today had I not been there if I'd have been ill that day or if I'd have not gone to that meeting at lunchtime I certainly wouldn't be sat here so it's just it's amazing how things work really from then on I, I kind of applied to this scheme that Sheffield was offering um, and that was in year nine that ran till year 12 um, and then you have to apply again to do the kind of A-level side of things I applied again and was lucky enough to carry on on that scheme and it guaranteed me an interview at Sheffield which I'll be very honest I needed I didn't get an interview anywhere else I did apply to other places but it was Sheffield that gave me the interview and Sheffield was my only place so so I had a totally different route into Emma um, and um, I think I felt very similar to Emma at university Although I'm a bit, I do like my sciences, um, I struggled with the biochemistry and I hated chemistry levels. So if there's people out there listening that are really struggling with their chemistry level and hate it, then you're not alone. I certainly hated it and um, I had to learn equations and I still don't understand it today. So please don't panic if you're struggling with your chemistry. Um, it's not the be all and end all. So I got there and then a bit like Emma when I hit the clinical side of things think something clicked um, so again if you're doing university courses that are all um, academic first so you're not in the wards and then you go into clinic places and you're not enjoying it then just bear with it because it kind of does get a little bit better or it did from my point of view yeah and then in terms of GP a bit like Emma like the variety the fact that you can see anything from a, a one-day-old baby right through to a hundred-year-old man or woman. Um, I liked a bit more about the lifestyles. It's a bit more flexible than kind of 
um, hospital medicine. I certainly didn't hate nights. I certainly didn't want to be working nights uh, much longer than I did. Um, the thought of doing nights in my thirties and forties petrified me. So I decided to um, not do that and weekends as well. It's nice to have my weekends free, which obviously a lot of the hospital doctors don't have, uh, including consultants now. They're expected to do weekends and be on call overnight. And it's probably not something I thought about when I was at kind of an aspiring medical student or when I was a medical student that kind of lifestyle thing didn't come in but certainly as I got into foundation years the importance mm -hmm. of shifts and being happy with my work-life balance became a real big um, important factor to me and I think as well being a woman wanted to have a family kind of in terms of being flexible and being able to look after children general practice just fitted that a little bit easier so I think same as Emma but also kind of some lifestyle mm -hmm. stuff as well which drew me into general practice. Mm. It's interesting you say that actually because everyone we've interviewed so far it's more been like shift work or hospital medicine so this is kind of the first time that on the podcast we're exploring GP and sometimes on placement it's what we, we call it going to GP land because it just feels completely different to um, hospital <laughs> placement so for our listeners who perhaps don't really know what what a GP does per se or what the hours are and I, I know some people say it's nine till five but I'm aware it's definitely not nine till five even though you don't have the nights and weekends um, it's still not necessarily that nine till five job so maybe would one of you guys be happy to talk a little bit about the lifestyle of a GP and maybe what you're expected to do I know there's a lot more than just seeing the patient in front of you. I think that's something as a GP trainee actually we've realised how much more there is. I think as a medical student you see a snapshot of what's going on. As a GP trainee you see more. Um, my husband's just started as a GP and I think he's now realised as well how well protected we are as a GP trainee. So I think it's interesting to kind of compare the life of a GP trainee yeah. to a life of a kind of qualified GP. So I think as a GP trainee and as a GP our days vary. And um, one of the great things about being a GP trainee is you have the amount of protected teaching we get. So we get sort of tutorial with our supervisor each week and that might be on sort of clinical topics it might be kind of listening back to consultations or reviewing videos and talking about what went well what you could do to improve and you also have that self-directed learning time each week and that's really important because GP is so broad it can anything can come through the door and you really need to have that sort of breadth of knowledge and we also have teaching and um, with the rest of the scheme so kind of sort of being kind of 8 30 till 6 30 on a Monday being a Tuesday morning for a tutorial Wednesday morning, I'd have self-directed learning. Wednesday afternoon would be um, kind of the group teaching with the rest of the scheme. And then full, full day Thursday and Friday, again, we'd be getting into 8.30 and probably finishing about 6. And then during the day, you'd have a morning and afternoon session. So at the moment with COVID, most of that is telephone calls and maybe one or two people you'd see face to face. At the end of that session, you then sort of talk to one of the GPs supervising you and kind of go through the cases talk about whether there's anything there that you change your management plan things like that then you have the kind of lunch break I say I say lunch break with sort of a, bit of a smile because um it's not really a lunch break that's people think oh we've got a really long break, lunch break in GP it's not because you have lots of admin so looking at referral letters you've received back from um, the hospital writing new referrals checking blood tests looking at documents that have arrived looking at any prescriptions that may need adjusting or sort of reissuing um, and there's also home visits so you're often asked to go and see um, patients who aren't able to get into surgery um, during the day. So they're kind of things you do as well. And I think a GP, they have a much higher workload. So they'll have shorter appointments, often kind of 10 minutes for a patient. And they'll have the more patients you see, the more work you'll have to do for those patients. So they'll have then all the actions from those consultations. That might be sending a referral to the hospital or asking for advice from a specialist. 
arranging blood tests, sorting out medication and all the admin side of things. I think that's the thing that you're often shielded from as a medical student or even on work experience is the amount of work that goes on in that lunch, that lunch time um, and sort of in the evening, getting all that kind of paperwork. So that's really important because if you miss something that's sent, sent off and you don't receive a reply or, um, or you miss a, an important blood test, that can have implications on the patient. So it's so important that is well organised and kind of kept up, kept up to date. You covered it perfectly. I think it's uh, like Emma said, as trainees, we are quite protected and it's nice. Um, we're protected 40 hours a week, uh, which we certainly, um, I don't often work over, but I know when I'm a fully qualified GP that that's not going to be the case because I don't have that <laughs> kind of um, protection on, on us that we do at the moment. Definitely for my GP placements, one of the things that my tutor said that really, I, I thought, God, my God, you've got so much paperwork. And he was like, the thing is every single piece of paperwork means something to somebody and like it, it actually could mean the difference between getting an operation or getting seen or having something picked up and not being picked up so I guess now ever since that my perspective has changed and like yeah paperwork's not fun but it does make a big difference to just one person and then multiply that by how many patients you've seen so yeah paperwork sucks but there's a there's a purpose there's a greater purpose yeah, I think for me, the only thing that I, would concern me is that the, there's so many different things that because someone could walk through your door with. So how are you confident about all of the different things that you need to diagnose and then all of the different managements? I don't even know the like the most common ones. I don't know how you're supposed to know all of them as a GP. So how, how do you manage that? I don't buy Emma, but I'm very rarely confident in a diagnosis. And I think that's something that you have to deal with as a GP. Um, uncertainty, you talk about um, uncertainty a lot in general practice. Um, and I think for me, the main thing is to rule out, is this life-threatening? Is this acute? And you can do that just like you would in the hospital. So um, the minute it's difficult, um, you know, with the telephone, but there are ways that you can do it over the phone. But if they were in, in front of me face-to-face, things like your blood pressure, your heart rate, um, how quick someone's breathing the temperature are all good signs whether this patient's safe to go home or whether you need to be speaking to the hospital. Um, the history is very important which um, work experience students will learn going into medical school and obviously if you are a medical student now then you'll learn history is so important. If this has been going on for months it's very unlikely that that patient's going to have you know any severe consequences of it otherwise it would have already happened. So I think that side of things is really important um, and just kind of making sure that that patient's well now. The other side is then if I don't know what's going on what can I use to help decide what it is? Is it blood tests that I need to do? Do I need to send the patient for an x-ray? Do we need to do a urine sample that we can do there and then? So there's lots of things that I use um, and I'm sure other GPs use as well to help rule out um, kind of first the most life-threatening then serious things and then kind of not as serious and then things that kind of like in a fungal nail infection that actually yes we do need to do something about but actually I don't need to worry about it today so I think that's kind of how I like to divide my uh, differential diagnosis so they're things that you're considering when you're talking to a patient and then I use my investigations just like you would in the hospital but they often take a little bit longer to get back as you can imagine in the community we don't have incident blood results so I think that's that's how I manage it. And then there's something called safety netting, which people might have heard of, which is where you advise the patient, you tell them, look, if it gets worse or if your breathing gets bad, if, if you get any chest pain, if you cough up any blood. So things that would be kind of would show that there's something serious going on. Then you either, you know, you tell them to ring 999, you get that or get to where you need, or you can always ring the surgery if we're open. So kind of using safety netting and educating the patient and just giving the patient the kind of confidence um, and the power to, to kind of look after their own health is really important in general practice as well um so yeah i think i think i'm very rarely certain on a diagnosis but there's definitely ways that you can do it so that you're safe um, and eventually you know get to the bottom of of the diagnosis i think one of the 
disadvantage for a lot of people about general practice is the uncertainty. We don't have like the shiny buildings we often refer to hospitals in a jokey way. It's sort of, we don't have blood tests at our fingertips we can see instantaneously. We don't have x-rays that we can see straight away. We can't just do a quick CT scan. Um, so there is a lot of managing risk. And as Lauren said, it's about trying to work out, is this life-threatening or is this really serious? What do I need to do today? And if, it's, and if you're not sure, speaking to colleagues, seeing, using time. Um, so often in primary care, so general practice, we use time to see how things change over time and use that as a way of helping with the diagnosis. Um, so there's that and asking colleagues and different GPs will have different interests. The practice I was just that had um, all the GPs that had very different backgrounds. We had a, an ex-orthopedic surgeon who was obviously very fantastic at the musculoskeletal and all the joint things. So if you're ever unsure about something like that, we'd ask their advice. Um, the other GPs had specialist interest in dermatology. So if there are any skin lumps or bumps we we're not sure about, we'd ask for their advice. I think it's working together as a team. I think we can't all know the answer. It's about recognising what we don't know and knowing where we can get that extra help from. And like it's a continual journey. We're not expected to know everything. It's about recognising what's serious, what needs acting on now. And if we don't know, where can we get the help from to find out more? You mentioned something there about um, GPs can have special specialisms within practicing as a GP. Would you be able to talk a bit about that and how you kind of become specialised as a GP? Because I've not actually heard about how that formally happens. And so I think, sort of, and Lauren, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the scheme is changing currently. So it used to be GP um, with special interest, um, and you used to get a formal qualification from RCGP, and the curriculum that was recommended by the the sort of specialty was involved, for example, dermatology one, uh, dermatological societies recommended what should be kind of covered. Likewise, the kind of women's health, there was suggestion about what you should cover. And that kind of used to be the route to go down. Um, it's sort of changing now. So I think it's quite hard to sort of say where it's going to go. But I think basically the best way to is to get more exposure in that area you're interested in. And one of the ways of doing that is getting things like diplomas or extra qualifications in that area. So I've got an interest in women's health. So um, when I was an F2 doctor, I did some extra training. Um, I had a gum job, so a sexual health job, but I did some extra shifts um, so that I could get my um, CFSRH, which is the diploma in family, reproductive and sexual health diploma. And I also got one of my Ops and Gynae ones. So it's just extra things. I did like an extra exam, extra supervised training, and just to have those. So hopefully when I go on to do kind of more women's health within general practice, I've got those kind of qualifications. So you don't need to have the qualifications it's not a requirement as of yet but it does help to kind of get that extra knowledge there's one for elderly medicine there's an ENT one there's a pediatric one there's dermatology one so there's a right wide range and there's lots of courses you can go on to increase your kind of exposure and knowledge and again if you express an interest in the practice of trainees they'll often try and give you those clinics or give you opportunities to see those more to gain more kind of experience and improve your knowledge. So they would sort of tailor patients towards the GP's skill set if they can? So I think if you, so for example, in fact, I've just been at, there was one of the dermatology, GP is interested in dermatology, she would have a dermatology clinic. So if we'd seen things we weren't sure about, we could book them in with her. Obviously now COVID, it was seeing photos, but she would review things and kind of go through that. So she'd always be like an extra step before we spoke mm. to dermatology. And um, the other GPs who has an interest in women's health, she did like a family planning clinic. Um, and a gynae clinic kind of once a week so she'd have a morning of doing things like coils and implants and also doing things like any difficult smears if the nurse wasn't able to do it or if anyone had seen done a, a speculum and thought that sort of pelvis doesn't look normal or something's not going on quite right she'd happily review it and kind of give advice from that point of view and, and colleagues will ask their other colleagues with that interest go oh you've got an interest in this what do you think of this and I think that comes with time 
it reminds me of on, on placement I was in ophthalmology and I was in a clinic and then I was just talking to um, the doctor I was with and she was like oh yeah I'm a GP and I was like you what <laughs> and she was a GP that worked um, one or two days a week in the hospital doing ophthalmology and I didn't even blew my mind but it's amazing how diverse and you can literally it sounds like you can create the career you want um, within GP definitely a bit easier than hospital medicine. Yeah, definitely. I think we can definitely pick up shifts in A&E in, our, in my local trust. So um, over at Halifax and Huddersfield, you can pick up shifts in A&E as a GP, which is quite good. So if you still like your urgent care, then you can still do that. Um, I think kind of the other thing to mention is things like minor surgeries, which is something that I really want to get involved with. Um, I really miss the practical side of GPs. A lot of people don't want to do GP because I think it's not hands on. There's no kind of practical side of things. But actually, as Emma's mentioned, you can put in some uh, coils, you can do smears, you can fit implants, do a minor surgery taking kind of taking things off that patients don't want you can do steroid injections into joints so actually there is a whole range of practical things that you can actually do in, in primary care and the patients are so grateful because they haven't got to do a massive haven't got to wait a massive waiting list like they would at the hospital um, so I think you know it's a um, yeah. really flexible career that you can actually create your own path really in, in your own career. But has there ever been anything that you've regretted about your decision to become a GP? I don't think so I think First thing to kind of say is I think one of the things I had is I took some time out after FT. So I had quite a, an eventful kind of one or two, it was really chaotic. And I was feeling like I was absolutely exhausted by the end. So before starting GP training, my husband and I said, let's take some time off. So we went traveling for six months. I think that was me recognizing the need to look after your well-being. Um, and I think I kind of wish we took more time. We only took six months in a way. I wish we'd taken a year off just to kind of recharge a bit more. So I kind of went into A&E as my first job in GP. I thought, why did I say I was going to do A&E as a GP? Why did I think this was a good idea? And it was usual from a learning experience, but I was just exhausted and was trying to plan a wedding at the same time. We were trying to move house. And with that was shift work, starting a new city. It was just all a bit kind of chaotic. So I thought maybe me trying to do, I need to do this for my learning. But why did I decide to do an A&E job? So I think that was maybe one of my only kind of regrets about GP training so far was kind of from that point of view, like which jobs I'd chosen the GP training scheme? I don't think I regret choosing GP. Do I regret becoming a doctor sometimes? Mm. Unfortunately, yes. Um, I think it's hard work. It's hard work, as Emma mentioned, trying to juggle work-life balance and, you know, um, working shifts when I used to work, work shifts. But also, you're dealing with people's lives and it's really hard to leave that at work sometimes. You know, you come home and, and you know, it does affect you. You know, you hear horrible stories or you, you kind of diagnose someone with terminal cancer. And you're not telling me that someone can go home and not think about that. You know, we're on the human. Um, and I think, you know, it is tough. It is a tough career. Um, it, it's, it's more than a career, really. <laughs> I think, I think you know, it's a, a lifestyle choice, really, unfortunately. And I don't think I was prepared for that really when I when I kind of agreed to, to do medicine um having said that can I see myself doing something else no um so I, I suppose it's a bit for me it's a bit like Marmite I love it and I hate it all all in one <laughs> all in one so um yeah there are days that I regret it when you're busy when you're tired when patients really um I mean, we had massive complaints last week because we wouldn't go out and do a home visit even when it wasn't needed. Um, and we were trying to explain, you know, that we were protecting the patient from COVID, et cetera. But um, the patient just wasn't having any of it, saying that we had a list of excuses to not do any work. Um, and I think days like that and patients like that do get you down, no matter how 
um, optimistic and positive you are it you know mm. it does get you down and um, unfortunately with the current situation a lot of patients are unhappy with kind of obviously our routine care has been cancelled um, and they are people they're living with knee pain from their arthritis or they're living with ear pain and they can't go and see the specialist where they need to go um, and I think you know that frustration unfortunately then comes back to us as, as GPs and it, it can be quite quite tricky to, to pick yourself up when patients are just moaning at you but on the flip side you know Patients are, on the whole, very thankful and grateful. Um, and I think making that difference does make it worthwhile. Um, but it is it is difficult. And there are some days where, I won't lie, I do regret my decision. Mm, I think it, you describe kind of uh, as GP being the first port of call for patients, because obviously they can't walk into a hospital and say, I want to be seen by um, a specialist, even though I have seen that happen, actually, and the specialist just <laughs> turned the way and was like, this is not how it works. Um, you talked about referrals <laughs> earlier and I guess could we talk about a bit about the GP's role in terms of maybe gatekeeping and also health promotion and prevention so how much of your work would you say is trying to maintain good health and how much of it would you say is treating disease? Yeah it's a tricky one actually it's a really good question and um, I think a lot of it is trying to prevent we always say prevention is better than the cure in, in general practice but unfortunately a lot a lot of the time it is the illness that makes a patient do something about the lifestyle so it's often the wake-up call that they need so I wouldn't say we were always successful um, in it but we do try um, you know we, we do try and give lifestyle advice and ask you know support people stop smoking etc and, and, and hopefully try and prevent disease that way. Um, I think as a GP we actually do a lot more acute stuff now so dealing with diseases a lot of the practice nurses do the chronic stuff so they will do your um, diabetes reviews or rheumatoid arthritis reviews so they're often the ones that are actually giving the lifestyle advice monitoring patients weights blood pressures um, and unfortunately as our workloads got bigger and bigger it's something that we do less and less we oft often deal with the um, the active disease whereas it's our colleague nursing colleagues that deal with the more chronic issues um, so I would say it's changed over time um, we deal a lot less with prevention now than we ever used to do um, having said that if someone is kind of smoking too much I do try and advise them to cut down <laughs> so you know there is a bit of both but I would say we do less and less these days I don't know if Emma would agree with that I think it has reduced compared to the past I think as well it's harder with 10 minute appointments they're coming with an acute problem we always always try and think how can I kind of talk about their health like they're smoking as Lauren said smoking heavily that needs to come into conversation too um, but I always kind of think you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think that sowing those seeds, if I can just mention their weight and say, have you thought about your knee, your knee pain? And, and so we can't get you to specialist right now. I'm really sorry because COVID, there's a long waiting list. But actually, if you thought about maybe losing a weight, that will help with the knee pain. It's going to reduce the amount of pressure on your joints and trying to do things like that. I think it's difficult as well as a lack of funding at the moment from a kind of public health point of view. Um, Try not to get political here, um, but sort of things like even things about sexual health and how the funding has changed for that and the impact um, that has had on and um, sort of kind of in the case of FBIs and things like that. So I think there's a lot more that can be done, but I think it's really difficult and it's trying to balance all those things. I think we've been trying to um, delegate accordingly, and as Lauren said, the nurses are fantastic at kind of monitoring kind of chronic disease, and we tend to do with more acute things or the kind of more kind of pressing matters. But I think it's important to sow those seeds and try and encourage people to have a think about those things it may not happen they? they're not going to stop smoking but we know that by mentioning it and just sort of say, suggesting it and sort of opening that conversation that can have an impact later down the line so it's interesting how you've talked about how it's changed since you've kind of been practicing where do you guys see gp going in the future with population getting older the population getting bigger what what do you think is going to happen 
Well, yeah, I think that's a, a really great question, actually, about the future of, of GP and, and where it might go. I think COVID is certainly sp- kind of sped speed. I don't know which is the right word. Quickened. <laughs> sped, sped things up a bit. <laughs> and I think COVID has definitely sped things up a little bit in terms of doing a lot of our consultations via video, via the telephone, mm-hmm. using text messages to get photos from patients, and texting out leaflets, texting out referral letters. And I think it's actually brought general practice into the 21st century, which is quite nice. I think we were very behind before and it's needed this. Maybe one of the only positives I can think of of COVID, it has needed this to help us manage with the workload that we're having. I think a lot of patients, especially the younger generation, like the telephone triage, they can get on with the day. They don't have to sit in the waiting room for 45 minutes an hour. Um, they can just go about the day a bit work and answer the phone when it rings. And I think a lot of kind of our generation, um, well, mine and Emma's, I can't really include you two in that, but um, <laughs> kind of the younger generation, my generation, and quite possibly kind of people in the 30s, 40s are quite enjoying that side, you know, that side of GP. Um, the older generation aren't quite as on board, but I think it's just because traditionally you will come and see the doctor um, and you would sit in the waiting room and come and say hello. So, but I, I prefer it. I like it. I think it's a, a nice way. I think there's a lot of, there is more uncertainty with the telephone and I think in the future we'll have a balance so at the minute we're only seeing patients face to face as we need to I think in the future we will keep more telephone triage but we'll also have a few more face to face than than we have at the moment but I think a lot of things will stay such as video consultations and texting photos um, they're brilliant for things like skin lesions and as, as Emma mentioned before if you've got a specialist in your practice I often just go and ask them to look at that photo and that patient's got a specialist to look at it within 10 minutes. Mm. And I just think, you know, there's so much more flexibility with, with that side of things. So, yeah, I think I think the, the future's bright. I think it's better than, than it used to be. Um, and the, uh, there was a lot of kind of the, the morale in GP had dropped maybe last year, but I think it's certainly picking up now. And I think there's a lot of kind of young GPs coming through who are excited about, you know, technology changes that we're, we're having at the moment. And I think it will, you know, I think it will really change GPs. Yeah. Emma, do you see it going in any other direction? Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, GP was oh, the whole of the NHS stuck kind of in the dark ages regarding technology, and COVID has meant that we've had to catch up. And sort yeah. of in the last year, I'd say it's really advanced five to ten years in the technology. Sort of, it's mm. amazing the difference the year has made. We've had to kind of make that change. Telephone mm. calls, most things you can do is telephone call actually sometimes they're better than actually having a face to face. I've had a few patients with anxiety and depression and they really struggle to come down to surgery, but actually having a phone call they can go and go for one to talk whilst they're in a safe place they're safe, whether that be their home, whether that be going for a walk somewhere. They found that really helpful. It's often quite a lot quicker, it's a lot easier for some patients who may struggle to get to practice, they can do it over the phone. Laura said about photos, it's a game changer being able to see someone's rash or be able to see Reason you can see it and make a decision about whether you need to see it and take photos yourself or whether you can use that one and reassure them from that. So, I think the future will be using more technology and using more telephone calls. I think there is still a place to face, and I think a lot of people really do value that kind of connectivity. And I think I think it's trying to encourage and support the public to understand that we are going to be, we're not going to go back to the way it was, and that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm. It's yeah. so interesting that you both really like or talk about how positive you think the telephone consultations are because on my GP placement one time there was a, a, a telephone call and I I swear to god this man was talking about his tooth so I was the whole time talking about his tooth and his mouth and then at the end he was like oh yeah and my my, my heel hurts as well and I was like what and, I, and he was like yeah and he was talking about his toe the whole time <laughs> I didn't understand him at all 
and the GP was like Kira I was with you I thought he was on about his tooth as well and normally where I had my lip read or I was literally at the phone with my ear down like what on earth is, is this person saying but yeah I guess once you get over that yeah I think it's hard I think if you are relying more on what the patient says and I think the end of bedside test where sort of oh I can't walk I'm dying in pain and they walk casually into your wait into your into waiting room they casually walk into the consulting room sit down absolutely fine and it's really hard over the phone to kind of say are they actually like that or is this a patient who feels like that Um, but actually is okay and I think that is kind of hard you haven't got that extra information and you take so much away from seeing a patient face to face and I think that's why telephone calls can be harder because you are having to ask those questions and try and get to do things I've had patients jumping up and down on the spot we're trying to find out about abdominal pain we did bring them down but just to see whether I need to bring them down for the morning or whether I should wait until the afternoon and say can you hop on one leg can you do this and just trying to get a description of how they were and what things would make it better or worse over the phone it's been quite hard. Yeah, I think the, the flip side of that is we have patients that put downplay symptoms. Yeah. So there'll be patients who are really short of breath over the phone, but they tell you their breathing's fine. And you know full well it's not fine because patients, are, unfortunately at the moment, are petrified to go to hospital. They're absolutely petrified. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that is is the fact that patients, some patients will downplay the symptoms, um, which is quite dangerous as well over the phone because you can't physically see see that patient and see how much pain they're in. Um, or how their breathing is or kind of um, in med school talk about the just standing at the end of the bed and looking at your patient and that will tell you a lot about that patient Um, and unfortunately the telephone does take that away so it is more risky having said that there is lots and lots of good tips and tricks that you can use over the phone to make that risk kind of reduce amazing fabulous so I think we've talked so much about the life of GP and hopefully now our listeners have got a solid idea of what actually happens in a GP practice what a GP actually does and so at the start when you introduce yourself you both mentioned that you have done some work um, with Health Education England in a fellow role some of our listeners might be thinking what on earth is a fellow Um, like what is a fellow would one of you guys be able to just introduce us to what HEE is what a fellow is how did you kind of fall into this and then we can talk about your exciting projects and things you've been doing so I'll start with what HEE is I'll try my best anyway so um, HEE is is Health Education England and it's a massive organisation that actually has its finger in lots of different pies so as the name suggests it's mainly about education Um, and um, that's both educating doctors but also educating patients as well. So it has lots and lots of different roles and it's a UK-wide um, organisation that implies lots and lots of different people. Um, now, um, HE, I believe, oversees kind of all the training, all the speciality training. And then within training, you have your own. So we're part of the Royal College of General Practitioners and each speciality will have a Royal College, but HE are the ones that oversee all the education as well as the GMC, which you've heard about before. They all work together to help with postgraduate and undergraduate training. Uh, how I got involved with HE is this leadership fellow that we've mentioned and it basically t- took a year out of training so I did it between um, GP training is three years I did it between the second and the third year um, so it's a completely non-clinical year and I really needed that I'd, I'd had a little bit of enough of clinic and needed some non-clinical time to, to focus on something that I was passionate about so I that's why I applied for it and went for it but it's also um, being a leadership role um, it kind of taught me a lot of really useful skills about making change and driving changes in the future where they fund you to do a postgraduate certification so I completed one in medical education so that means that I'll be able to teach when I fully qualify and be something called a GP trainer so that's when you get a GP trainee 
um, that kind of follows you and you support them through their training. So it was a really great opportunity and that was all funded as well as being paid at the same pay that I would be as a GP trainee. So it was a real great opportunity. Lots of tra training days, lots of um, education about how to be a leader and how to drive changes, which I think is really important. But it also gave you the chance to work on project or a couple of projects that you were passionate about. And that's where my winding participation kind of came in and, and how I spent my year working on this virtual reality work experience app. And also a primary school booklet for children, because it, a lot of evidence suggests that by the age of five, we already have preconceived ideas about what we can and cannot achieve because of our parents. So by trying to get in before the age of five to say, no, look, you can do anything that you kind of want to do and hopefully inspire them into healthcare. I know it's a, a long way off for them, but hopefully by raising them issues and, you know, we can uh, hopefully change, change the future of, of medicine and the type of people that are applying to do it. I don't know if that answers your question at all. I don't know if Emma wants to add, um, add anything to that and, and the fellowship and what HEE does. I think there's lots of different things um, that you can do as these So it's a year out of training and you don't have to be a GP trainee. So there were trainees, there were dental trainees, public health trainees, trainees from paediatrics, plenty of specialties. There were also pharmacists, um, people doing occupational therapy, um, speech and language therapy. So a range of fellows sort of from different backgrounds. And that's one of the great things. You have this community of people all learning leadership skills and kind of supporting one another. And yeah, it's just like that absolutely fantastic opportunity here around to develop clinical medicine and the few projects in the area that you're passionate about. So I spent a year doing projects related to health equity. And so health equity is the kind of unfair and unjust differences um, in health, um, which are kind of out of people's control, which is not fair. It's how do we level the playing field? How do we make it fair so that everyone has good health? Um, I don't know if people have heard about things like Michael Marmot and the Mike Marmot um, review, but it's kind of looking at stuff like that and how how we can try and level the playing field. Um, so I've got an interest in women's health, so I did quite a lot of um, work with women's health during my year. So I worked with um, an organisation called Fair Health that do health education for health professionals about inequality and equity, and um, created a learning package about women's health in relation to health equity, what we can do to try and make healthcare more accessible, but also aware of the barriers, what we can do to break those down, to kind of inform people to look at groups that are often marginalised, so, uh, Fabulous communities and um, people from ethnic minorities and um, sex workers, the LGBT plus community, kind of looking at how, how people can better inform about supporting um, those groups. I also did some work about vital screening and looking at how to make it more accessible for certain groups who are less likely to attend that. So, women from areas of socioeconomic deprivation, um, women from ethnic minorities, women who don't have English as a first language, um, kind of transient population people who are on the move and um, they're less likely to get them. So I did some work with some practices um, in West Yorkshire and sort of implemented some suggestions about how we can improve that. Um, and I also did some work about um, LGBT plus. It's something that and you may be different in med school for you guys, but when I was at med school, I'm sure Lauren's saying we never had any teaching or training about it. And as a GP training, I hadn't had any either. And I've got friends who are transitioning and re realised the barriers that they were coming up when they were the lack of knowledge they were coming across when they were seeking healthcare um, in a secondary and primary care setting. And I created a teaching package of answering kind of basic questions about the LGBT plus community and how you can be more friendly and some of the health needs that that community may have and how we can support those and be a better ally. Yeah. That sounds like such an amazing opportunity because I think 
what I really like about intercalating at the moment is that I chose to do medicine, but there are so many other interests I have outside of medicine that maybe doing a medical degree makes a bit makes it a bit harder to pursue those interests. So a couple of my friends who are really passionate about English and reading, they're intercalating in English lit this year. One of my friends is intercalating in law and the opportunity to be a leadership fellow. And even though it's still like in the field of medicine as a whole, it sounds like you can really pursue all of your specific interests that perhaps you might not be able to do so much in your very specific hospital or GP role. So honestly, it sounds like an excellent opportunity. Yeah. It really is. And I think if you want more information, the Health Education England has a website has got lots on there. Um, it might be a bit early for aspiring medical students because <laughs> you can't be so you're kind of a speciality doctor. But it certainly is something to think about and consider mm. um, as you kind of progress through training. And I think what's really nice, I now do one day a week where I carry on my projects. So um, a Wednesday is my day where I uh, have time out of clinic um, and I con concentrate on my projects. So it's really nice. It's a break in the week um, and breaks up my clinical work to kind of um, do something that I'm passionate about, which is really nice. Amazing. I think we've talked about so much in this episode. I, I can't believe where the time's gone. Um, so just to summarise and finish up, would um, you each be able to share maybe the biggest lesson you've learned in your career so far or your, your experience so far? Yeah. I think for me, one of the things I've learned is making sure you look after yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. And as an example, put your own box and mask on before you put someone else's on. And be a good doctor, be careful of patients you need to look after yourself first and make sure that you're not burnt out and that you've got the energy to do that and I think Laura mentioned earlier about the difficulties um, and the upsetting situations you can come across in work and you do need to have time when you come home to de-stress and sort of have a way of kind of managing those situations and, and sort of finding ways to sort of de-stress and just kind of process this all I think. Yeah, I think for me, it's never assume or presume. Um, I'm shocked every day by what patients tell you and what you're told. And, you know, I think um, never assume or presume, always ask. Um, you know, I think that's definitely something that I've learned um, over, over the, the years that I've been a doctor. I think, you know, I'm surprised on a daily basis about what people think and, and or what they're doing or um you know, and patients are really honest with you uh, about life and about it. So I think A, it's not to assume or presume and B, don't be judgmental. They're telling you this for a reason and it's not, you're not there to judge, you're there to um, advise and help. And so I think that's my, um, I know we talked about it with Kim where we've kind of called patients um, grandma when they're mum and uh, daughter when they're partner. And I think it's similar, similar sort of things, you know, you, you, we are built with this unconscious bias and, you know, some patients you will look at and you will make judgment um, but I think it's just really important to not do that and, and not assume, always ask. Amazing. Well, that's such, I think that's really great messages to end on. Thank you so much for speaking to us. And I'm sure our listeners will also extend their thanks as well. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. And we hope we've sold general practice <laughs> to people and not put people off. <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing career.